Hello and welcome to The Campaigns, the actual play podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael, and this is a special edition of The Campaigns, Burning the Wicker Man, episode number one, Private Stash of Weapons. Now what makes this a special bonus edition of The Campaigns is that we are being DM'd by Chris Matney, who you may know as the founder and managing director of Trapdoor Technologies, the team behind Codename Morningstar. They are currently kickstarting Codename Morningstar, and I really hope that you enjoy this episode, but I more importantly hope that you will follow the links in the show notes over to their Kickstarter page, review it, and find a pledge level that you are comfortable with, because I would really like to see this project completed. Now within the game, there's going to be several episodes that come out of Burning the Wicker Man. It is in the Savage Worlds game system, using the Realms of Cthulhu campaign setting. We are basically in a steampunk version of the late 1800 Victorian London. All of our characters are part of the King of Clubs, which is a group of basically adventurers and investigators and brilliant minds and those that are somewhat in the know of what's going on in this crazy mixed up world. Now the characters that we are playing for this adventure, Caleb is playing Alfred Robbie, a burglar and crack safe. Scott is playing the vicar, Lester Moore. Matthew, who does join us a little late in episode one, is playing Master Sergeant James Micah. And I round out the crew as James Spook Morgan, an American board gambler, writer, and wannabe cowboy. So once again, I want to thank Chris for agreeing to run this uh, series of games for us and giving us a peek inside his brilliant DMing mind. And I do want to encourage you again to head over to the Kickstarter page and take a look. So here is The Campaign's Burning the Wicker Man, episode number one, Private Stash of Weapons. We were trying to pick out some characters, and I think Caleb, uh, he wants to play all of them. So we're running into a bit of a snag. He uh, he seems to be very excited about the, what the material you presented for us. Cool. Yeah. The uh, the 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 reason that I I do it this way is uh, this is my one night stand material, and so I never know who's going to come. And so we just have you know, sort of thirty characters up online. Pick pick your character. Come on down. And uh, that way we don't have to try to get a particular group of people together. Um, we can just whoever can make it for the night can uh, can play. So. You know, back in the old days when we were young, we could do a uh, a running campaign and everybody would show up every week. Now, well, kids, wives, yeah, it all gets in the way. So, yeah, trust me, I, I'm trying to figure out how I can do this for a living so I can do more of it because my stupid job keeps getting in the way. <laughs> uh, Has not worked out yet. Uh, Caleb, have you picked a character yet? Under much duress and confusion think I'm going to be Alfred Robbie the burglar ah yes excellent choice I sure hope so (laughs) oh it's starting already (laughs) I have a question Chris I I picked the vicar as the character that most appealed to me before having read the fact that we'd be on a train without our firearms Am I uh, basically lining myself up for the the DM hammer right away that I have no real interesting capabilities outside of blasting people in the face with the guns I don't have? I think it's an excellent choice. You're playing the Vicar Lester Moore. By the way, you're not on a train. You're on a... um, 
Oh, the airship, yes. The airship. Bloody airship, mate. Right, right. Cool. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's funny we've been, uh, the way I tweak characters is that as people play them, we get, uh, if someone doesn't play a character for a while, I'll bump up one of their stats or something and make <laughs> them more interesting. And then uh, if a character gets played too much, then um, I will make some tweaks to uh, make them less attractive to try to get the big normalization to happen. And it's, it's fun because a lot of people like playing a different character every time. A couple of people are just like, that's my character. I want that to be my character every time. So, so Michael, who are you going to play? I'm going to play Morgan Spook James. Ah, outstanding choice. Now, assuming Matt can join us, he told me to pick a character to prepare for him. He is going to be Master Sergeant James Micah. Okay. Of course, that's assuming he can join us and we can work that into the story. Oh, yeah. We can always have people join us. That's, a, uh, that's easy. Uh, it's the more, a more the merrier type of a, type of a situation. So. As, Scott, have you played Savage Worlds before? You know, um, maybe once in a past life when I was young and naive and impressionable. <laughs> you're in you're in college and you needed the money. That's right. <laughs> I know Caleb and I are both pretty. I mean, I'm not an expert, but I know mechanics. I know how the wild die works, raises aces, that kind of thing. Okay. Um, were you were you able to read Scott the stuff, uh, the kind of the overview, or do we need to cover that quickly, like so that you know how to do your character? Um, covering it quickly, in addition to the overview, would really help. You know, the more information presented in different ways, the merrier I am. I would appreciate that. All right, Chris, you want to take that? You probably more adept at it than I am. Um, sure. Did um, did you happen to download the uh, cheat sheet off the, the site that has all the rules on four pages? I sure did. That's a, okay, so that's a good start. So, so normally this would be done, of course, in the application. But Okay, so Savage Worlds is pretty simple. Uh, instead of using dice for initiative, we use Cthulhu cards playing cards. So these will be used for our initiative rolls. And some of you have special item or special uh, powers that allow you to change out these cards. The combat is, is fairly straightforward. So each round you get one action plus a free action. Uh, moving is a free action. So typically you get a move in something else. Uh, drawing a weapon, casting a spell. This is very pulpy. Uh, we are playing heroic horror, so um, if you want to try to do multiple things, you can. Each action you take is, gives you a minus two on all actions. So if you want to try to draw your gun, jump over the fence, and shoot, you can try it. The chances of failure go up pretty dramatically once you, once you get there. Um, every time you roll a dice, you're going to be rolling an extra D6. Uh, that will allow, that's called the wild dice, and you take the best result. Whenever you roll the maximum roll on a dice, you always re-roll it and add the effect so you can get very, very huge scores, um, which makes it more pulpy and more fun. And then in the actual uh, rolls, when you exceed, so I'm going to tell you what a tar the target number is for each action. If you exceed it by four, you get a raise, and every four after that, you get a raise. So if a target number is four, if you roll an 8, a 12, 16, you get one raise, two raises, three raises, and that gives you better uh, uh, damage. It gives you better uh, uh, results on uh, any roll that you're making. 
And the other thing that's a little bit different is we have bennies, and bennies are um, tokens, and the tokens basically allow you to re-roll something, and everybody starts uh, with three, so if you have some token that you can use there at the table, just put it next to you, and then when you do something really cool, I will give you an extra token, um, and that will be something that you can use later on. So the tokens are very fluid. There's no reason to take them to the locker room. We can get into like healing and stuff when we get to uh, to actually have, having taken damages. So the missile combat when you roll your two hit, and you notice on your sheet here, it you notice on the sheet there's a agility, smart, spirit, strength, and their dice types. So uh, for making a uh, missile roll, you know I'm going to be rolling my agility plus I'm going to roll my um, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm going to be rolling my shooting, which is a d10, plus the wild dice. You're always rolling two dice, whatever the base dice is, plus the wild die. And I can, I can help you um, if you get stuck in the, in the combat with running through it. But basically, in combat for missiles, you're trying to get a, a four to be successful. If you get raised, you get to do more damage. For combat, you're trying to go against the creature's toughness, and um, you have to exceed that. Once you've done damage, instead of having hit points, you take wounds, which I mark off with these uh, little discs, and you can take uh, three wounds, and then you're dead. Um, well, you're not dead. You're incapacitated, and then I get to tell you what happens because I've got this little cool deck of cards I've made that tell you all the different possible effects. A difference between regular Savage Worlds and what I run as a house rule is uh, we also have Madness because you're going to be taking Mental Anguish, and that's a role that you're going to be making against Spirit, to uh, try to avoid taking um, madness. And the more madness you take, uh, the more counters you get. Eventually you go insane and you get to draw from a different deck of cards which has um, the effects of your madness. So that's pretty much it. You're going to be rolling base dice off of your character sheet. You're going to be trying to exceed a target number. You're going to be rolling a wild dice. You're going to be having fun. So does that help at all? Or did I just confuse you? Sir? No. I, sorry, I'm used to playing with a camera. This is the first time I haven't, so I'm smiling and nodding, and it's obviously not helping you follow. Indicate that I'm following along, but yes. All right, Chris, we are in your capable hands, sir. Okay. I think what I want to start with is just a few housekeeping rules. I always like to run through these at the beginning of every session. It gives you some idea of how it's going to run. So we are playing Savage Worlds. We're playing the Realms of Cthulhu. Uh, is the uh, particular setting that we're using. And I do have a few house rules. Um, you all belong to a group of adventurers called the King's, King of Clubs. And because of that, if you draw the King of Clubs as an initiative card, um, you get an extra Benny. So the King of Clubs is a good uh, card to get for your initiative card. If you are a member of the King of Clubs, you can share Bennies during a session. So, um, uh, Scott, you're playing the Vicar Lester Moore, and is the Vicar Lester Moore a member of the King of Clubs? My understanding is that he is, but I don't think any of the other two are, or is it backwards? I know my character's not. He's an irregular. Not, um, and I think Alfred Roby is. Correct. So, yeah, so if you're both in the King of Clubs, you can share Benny's. Um, also, I like to play Fate is Unkind. Let me start with the prologue. You've read it on the website, but for the listeners, they haven't heard it yet. And this will set the uh, the adventure up. 
Timothy Watson is an eager researcher, at times brilliant and at others somewhat prone to the following flights of madness. The more staid members of the King of Clubs tolerate his eccentric behavior because of his one special ability, he can pick patterns out of seemingly random information. Scouring the London Times daily, Timothy has been known to find secret messages encoded in its folds, a popular mean of, means of communication between criminal elements in 1892. He can also tell you how many times and in what context the number 13 or the image of a terrier appears. While astounding, this poses a few challenge, namely trying to determine the valuable leads from the stream of observation that Timothy is constantly babbling. So while at lunch at Baring House on a quiet Saturday afternoon, the 30th of April, 1892 to be precise, you're not surprised to see Timothy dash into the room, a pile of papers in his arms, and his unkempt appearance tells you that he hasn't slept and yet another discovery has been made. The haunting hand is going to blow up Tintagel Castle tonight during the Walpurgis Night Festival. It's all in this advertisement here, Timothy gushes, pointing at a beautiful quarter-page layout for a trip on the East India Company's newest Icker-powered airship, the Chronobel. The promotion is for a round-trip adventure from London to Enchanted Tintagel Castle, the legendary home of King Arthur, for a celebration of the pagan festival of Walpurgis Night. The trip features the most fashionable magician in London, the illusionist, as entertainment on the two-hour flight. Once at Tintagel, the promotion continues, ladies and gentlemen will be treated to a formal dress ball on the grounds of the castle ruins, culminating in the burning of a giant wicker man on the beach below the castle, just outside Merlin's Gate. Returning at 2 a.m., the advertiser promises to have you home in time to catch a nap before church. Sounds like fun if you have an extra 250 pounds per person. Now, reading between the lines, skipping every, Timothy continues. Finally, he just hands you a sheet of paper with a message decoded. Accident at Tintagel. Finch needed. Sacrifices, explosions ready. Blind man's bluff. Old one's coming. R.G. R.G. Rufus Gladstone. The haunting hand. An inquiry into the East India Tourism Exchange reveals no seats available on the Cronobel for tonight's flight to Cornwall. Calling in all favors, a message from Lord Ashburton's niece finally arrives at Baring House. Six tickets procured for tonight's flight. Dress is formal. No luggage or weapons allowed. Passengers subject to search. Be at the East India Aerial Dock Number 1 at 6 p.m. Extreme caution advised. It is 4 p.m. Time to get dressed for a party. So normally here I would send you this prologue uh, through the application so that you would have it in your notes and you could refer to it through the adventure. Uh, you wouldn't have to take notes or remember uh, all the, uh, the details of the, uh, this, this, the description. So you are at Baring House. It's a very fancy club uh, in London. It is, of course, 1892. And in addition to sort of what we would expect in 1892, Icker has been discovered, and there are magically wonderfully powered devices now that use the green liquid to do all sorts of things that normally you couldn't do before. Some of you are more prone to being uh, technologists. Some of you are more prone to being uh, arcanists and looking into the mysteries of the, uh, the great old ones. But all of you have a common enemy in the haunting hand. So, gentlemen, what would you like to do? Well, I, I was kind of joking before that um, 
we're going to assume that some of the other members of the club are out and about dealing with other crises. And uh, we, we are kind of like the, the ones that are left. So my guys, as a gambler, we're probably sitting around a table. I've got cards dealt out. And, uh, you know, he comes in, he runs and tells us this. So I'll look to my companions and say, I guess we need to get dressed for a ball. I'll look around and say, this is our divine punishment for supporting this detestable hobby of gambling. Obviously because I've been losing for about an hour. <laughs> <laughs> an honest man should never play poker, Padre. Right, lads. Well, we better get cleaned up and brushed up. Slime. Now, get your pants on. Let's go. <laughs> Oh, right, lads, let's get cleaned up and brushed up. We have a, an appointment with destiny, I dare say. I thought the name of the ship was the Cronabelle. Bloody American. Put your clothes on. <laughs> All right, so I will get dressed in my finest duds, and of course I still have my Stetson on uh, and my cowboy boots, so otherwise I'm wearing formal dress. And uh, again, I, as a sort of a tick, I've always got a deck of cards in my hand that I'm just constantly like one hand shuffling kind of maverick style from the old TV show. Yep. Now I did mention that weapons would, were not, would not be allowed. Do we think we would be able to sneak them on or can we try that if we want to? Of course you can try anything. That's the fun of role playing. And only I know whether you can actually make it or not. <laughs> I will tell you that you're well aware that the East India company is a very powerful organization. They're the sole suppliers of ichor to the realm. And uh, they are bank-like in their uh, protection of the, 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 the places you go to dispense the ichor. Um, but you're not sure that you know, a commercial flight would be all that, all that tight on security, but, but you never know. You might have to plan for a contingency. Well, I think uh, the Padre would be the best choice because they're never going to think that a man of the cloth would uh, be sneaking in some shooting irons. So how about we see if we can load him up under those fancy robes of his? I, I look indignant at you for a moment for suggesting that I, as a man of God, would carry your filthy tools of murder and taint in under my dapper, fine robes. However, opening my robes and realizing that I have a, a full double-barreled shotgun and a number of shells in there, I begrudgingly admit that there may be room for a small smidgen more armament that uh, would hopefully go unnoticed and unmolested in my uh, divine attire. Excellent, Padre. Outstanding. So we have a uh, well-armed vicar. Uh, exactly what are you doing to sort of conceal what you, you've got them under your robes, anything else to conceal the, uh, and are you just taking a shotgun? Are you taking your, uh, your 32? I'm sort of thinking that, that everybody will need a gun. Maybe I should leave the shotgun at home as by far the least convenient concealable weapon. Take a revolver for everybody, presumably a knife for everybody, and, uh, secret them not only under my over robes, but under my under robes in such a way that they're inconvenient to remove until we've passed security. Uh, but once there, I can uh, excuse myself to the restroom and put them in a place that's more easily accessible. But such that they're, they would be, um, not only is it socially gauche to uh, inspect a vicar for weapons, but it would certainly be at least triply gauche to inspect a vicar for weapons that he ha may have secreted in this particular area. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm I'm really relying on on the the strength of my position 
and the position of my genitalia to to mask the uh, the truth of our our armaments. Now, now, Padre, I'm going to want to put my hands on those later, so still I need you to be a little bit selective of where you're putting those irons. I look appalled at you. You will not put your hands on these later. I will give you your oh, weapon, but no part of your filthy then, American hands will touch guns. my... Guns. He's talking about the guns, Father. Talking about the guns. <laughs> All right. Um, I can never understand anything you Americans say. Yeah, it's you, uh, you guys here with an accent. So, um, Alfred... Would you have any contacts that might be able to smuggle us some weapons on board as well in case the Padres' plan goes south? I don't know. I might know one or two people on the serving staff. I think I could uh, send off a telegram right quick. We've got a couple hours. Excellent. <clears throat> so do you have any skills that you feel would be appropriate to uh, trying to uh, make that social connection? Uh, I do have Streetwise. Okay. And I... Uh, I have a boost to my charisma, but I don't believe it stacks with Streetwise. Nope. Um, okay. So what exactly are you going to do to try to uh, sort of get something aboard that shouldn't be aboard? Um, well, uh, let's see here. Alfred is going to uh, Alfred is going to send a message to uh, maybe some of his street urchin connections. Uh, through them, kind of as the Baker Street Irregulars running messages for him. I'm I'm sure Alfred, with his life on the streets, has made connections with people all over town. And I want to maybe find someone on the serving staff, or what someone in the uh, in the engineers or mechanics, like those kind of grunt workers, to see if I could get them to uh, call in a favor with one of them, basically. And uh, have them bring a, uh, bring on a stash of uh, a couple revolvers or a couple knives, something like that. Okay, so go ahead and give me a uh, streetwise roll, which for you is uh, a d4 and your wild dice. Okay. And remember, if you get a maximum roll on either dice, you get to um, keep rolling until it's right? totaled out. And if you get snake eyes, let me know because then the fun begins immediately. All right. Okay, I have a uh, three on my streetwise and a five on my wild die. So you always just take the highest. So your roll, for, your roll in this case was a five. Okay. Um, typical target numbers are four to succeed on something. So you've sent off a message uh, through the irregulars to try to get a couple of revolvers smuggled on board for you, and you're not sure exactly what's happened. So the message has been sent. You're fairly confident because one of your connections actually knows somebody on board that something will happen, but you're not sure exactly how that's going to happen uh, because obviously this is the 1892 and messages don't fly around very quickly. Well, boys, I uh, sent off a message. I think we will be in good hands. We just need to get ourselves over there. I ain't worried. I've always got a trick or two up my sleeve for such situations. I, I come out of the back room, <clears throat> not referring to what I now have up my supposed sleeve, and uh, looking a little bit indignant at the slightly uncomfortable way I now need to walk, I say, let us depart, gentlemen. Our plane of the sky waits. Okay. Anything else, gentlemen, before you head off to the uh, to the aerial docks? 
So are are we familiar with Rufus? Like, have we seen him before, met him? Would we know him? Uh, so if he's on board, like, we could be looking out for him specifically? Yes, you have run into Rufus Gladstone. Um, you are familiar with him on site. He is familiar with you on site. Um, you've had five or six encounters with uh, the uh, very slippery Mr. Gladstone. Well, that's the great thing about an airship. There's nowhere to run. Aye, aye. Also a bit easy to get tossed off the window there, mate. <laughs> uh, that would never happen. Never happen. Never. I double-checked that our tickets are valid and legal and not forged in any sort of way. We didn't get scalped second-hand tickets. No, the, the, the tickets are actually, uh, actually legitimate. The woman who procured them for you uh, is a very high member of society for whom uh, spending $250 on a ticket is nothing at all. You've, uh, you know the family very well, and uh, Lord Ashburton is actually one of the uh, patrons of the uh, of Barring House in the club, so a supporter uh, in very deep standing. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I can't see what could possibly go wrong at this point. Excellent. Excellent. Um, Okay, so so how would you like to travel? You have a private carriage uh, within the confines of Barring House. You have your own hansom cab, or you could use a hansom cab off the street. Barring, Barring House is across from a large park, and the cabs run here frequently. And on a Saturday uh, in the late afternoon, it is easy to catch a cab. I think it makes the most sense to hire a random cab, um, as Rufus knows us as well as we know him. No point in showing our hand a little early, just in case he has lookouts. Okay. Of course, you never know who's going to be driving an actual handsome cab there, Spook. We might be uh, inviting more trouble than it's worth. Where's your sense of adventure? A sense of adventure is in keeping my ass alive. If Rufus is on this ship... You might have uh, you might have a fellow or two waiting out in front, uh, anticipating or hailing a hansom. What say you, Padre? Well, I, I'm I'm afraid these earthly matters don't concern me, young gentleman. You, you two can negotiate our our um, frivolous ground transport. I I now already have my mind set on the rigid airships. Truly, the the king's sort of travel, God's sort of travel. Wow, that's a statement. By the way, just, uh, for your information, the uh, the club is very wealthy, so you are well loaded with money as you need it when you're traveling on uh, King of Clubs business. Um, so you can assume that if you're paying several hundred pounds that you're probably taking a fair amount of cash with you. Good to know. We've got the club's handsome. We might as well just take that. We know it's safe. We know the driver. Just have him All drop right, us right. off around the corner so that we're not quite so obvious. Brilliant, Padre. I agree. See, okay. Spook, you got me picking up your bloody slang, Padre. <laughs> that's rubbish. <laughs> uh, so you pull the bell, and the driver comes in, and you, uh, you tell them that you're going to be going off to the East India Aerial Docks. Uh, and he said, the usual procedure, shall we meet? Uh, at the stables in five minutes and head out? Right. Sure. Okay. Not quite so. 
So the, the, the other option is for him to come around front so that you can be seen being picked up. Uh, now, usual procedure is fine. We'll be in the back. Excellent. So you uh, you uh, put together the last few of uh, items that you're looking to uh, to do before you leave. Check your ties. Make sure they're nice and straight. And you've got uh, your guns and knives privately stored and pockets filled with cash, and off you go. So as you pull out from the uh, from the barring house stables and out onto the main drag, uh, everybody give me a notice roll. And a notice roll is a skill. If you don't have it, it's a die four minus two. If you do have it, roll the dice. Don't forget to roll your wild dice. And uh, tell me what your results are. Uh, now a question here for you, Chris. Yeah. Um, on Alfred's character sheet, it has notice at a plus six with a plus two in parentheses. Does that mean I have I do get that or I don't or there's a circumstance? There should be a circumstance under your edges that will tell you when you get that particular... Ah, okay, I do see that. Well, I guess I should ask then. Uh, this is under my thief, it would appear, so it would be a plus two to notice and repair when dealing with traps. I'm guessing that is not the situation we are in. That is that is correct. <laughs> okay. All right. So um, Spook uh, ended up with a six on his notice roll. Okay. Uh, Alfred has a five. And the vicar? The, the vicar, not Padre, has an eight total. Three on the uh, second, the fate die, the special die. The gods die. As you uh, travel down the street along the park and out into central London... You're all paying attention to, you know, sort of the surroundings, looking for the usual signs of being followed or anyone in the park that would be watching. And you're pretty much convinced that you have passed unnoticed from Barring House and that you're traveling uh, without a tail through London and towards the docks. So you arrive outside the docks, unless you have somewhere you want to stop along the way, at the East India Aerial Dock the newest and most talked about building in London. A shining silver beacon of the Clark clockwork age rising from the gritty factories and warehouses of the docklands. A long, narrow, two-story building, the East India Aerial Dock is built in stunning Gothic architecture. Pointed arches, buttresses, rose windows and spires all combine to make the edifice seem more like a cathedral than a modern aerodrome. Tonight, a single arrow ship Airship, the Cronobel, shaped like a large deep-sea anglerfish, is tethered to one of the aerial dock's four docking spires. Lights from below illuminate the airship as it floats on the air like a fish swimming in a sea of inky blackness. Located on a triangle of land in the shadow of the Tower of London and adjacent to the Royal Mint, a single entrance faces onto Upper East Smithfield Road with the other sides of the property bounded by Tower Hill Road in the water of St. Catherine's Dock Basin. A high stone wall circles the back of the property, leaving only the grand entrance exposed. Covered by a large Gothic awning replete with ribbed arches and stone gargoyles perched on the corner, the front entrance allows several carriages to discharge their patrons in dry comfort in front of the impressive copper doors of the building. On either side of the doors, the crest of the East India Company shines from a from flickering gas lamp gaslight lamps nearby. 
a set of marble stairs lead into the building. You see a number of well-dressed attendants that are out front, and as carriages pull up, um, the attendants immediately rush to usher the folks inside the dock itself. So that's the description. As you're approaching, you see this. Of course, you've probably been by it several times before, so it's not a, uh, a, a description that's new to you, but um, what would you like to do? I would once again suggest a little bit of great in my voice the, that, that although the idea of being dropped off around the corner is beneath my dignity as the, the right hand of God and such a well-dressed gentleman as well, I, I, I would prefer that we not be seen in our uh, large, clearly branded coach stepping out and being involved. Uh, so I, I further that suggestion. Yeah, your coach is actually the opposite of being well-branded. It is so mundane-looking as to blend in with every other coach that's out on the roads. They're all black back in 1892. However, that doesn't change the um, the the, uh, the action. You're perfectly willing to get dropped a block off and walk it in. Yeah, I think it makes sense to to do that and then maybe even stagger our um, entrance so that we're not all walking up to the ship at the same time. That's an excellent I, I, point. I volunteer I to be dropped off by the coach. Okay, you can be dropped off by the coach. I'll get out a little early and then take a point across the street and just kind of watch to see if I see anything, you know, looking for Rufus or his men or just anything that seems untoward. Okay. Yeah, Alfred will, Alfred, Alfred will do the same. He'll let, uh, if Spook's going to go across the street, uh, he will be on the proper side of the street, hang back a block or two, watch the vicar get dropped off, and then uh, slouch on over. Outstanding. Outstanding. So the, the, the handsome pulls up with the vicar. The Spook is, is off to the, uh, on the opposite side, keenly watching. Uh, Alfred is down the... Uh, a pathway on the same side of the street as the building. The handsome cab pulls up and comes to a stop and immediately a very, very attractive attendant rushes towards the, uh, the coach and opens the, the coach door and says, welcome, welcome to the Cronobel's flight from the East India Aerial Dock and offers you a hand. I need a notice roll from both Spook and Alfred to see if there's anything happening uh, with regards to the actual drop-off of the vicar. Nope. I have uh, I have a six, so that's aces, so I get to re-roll that die, correct? Correct. Total of nine. Watching the, uh, the, the movement of the, uh, of the crowd, and this would be normally something in the application that I would be sending only to you, because you were the only one to know it. So it would be something that um, no one else would be able to see, so they couldn't take action on it, which is one of the, the, the nice things about the, uh, the Morningstar app is the ability to send uh, secret messages. You're watching sort of the, the crowd. In particular, you're trying to determine whether anyone is out loitering about the, uh, the crowd, and you don't really see anyone that lingers. The only ones that linger are the, the, the attendants. Uh, the attendants seem to be just efficiently moving about their business, and no one seems to take any special note um, that the vicar Lester Moore has, has arrived. So uh, it seems very much exactly 
uh, what you would expect. Roby, what was your roll? Um, a nine total. You notice that the ground floor windows of the building are fake, that the light that's coming from the stained glass windows that you assume led the inside are actually, uh, there's a stone wall just behind the glass, and they're just being illuminated by lamps that are positioned just behind the glass to give the illusion like there's light coming from the inside. So, Vicar, uh, you're at the front door. What would you like to do? I breathe heartily of this uh, the, the, the wonderful scent, the, the oils and, and the, the, the scent of modern London, and I offer this delightful assistant my uh, ringed and well-manicured hand. I step down from the coach and say, Ah, rigid airships, dirigibles, this is truly God's work. And I step into the foyer. Outstanding. It is a wonderful magnificence that the, uh, the clockwork age has brought us. Who would have ever thought that we would be traveling by air? As you step through the door and into the, the promenade of the East India aerial dock, you're in a magnificent space. A long central gallery runs the length of the building. Alternating black and white marble squares give the space a game board-like feeling. Slicing through the checkerboard, a silver six-foot-wide pathway runs from the front entrance to the boarding platforms at the far end of the building. Standing on the pathway, patrons are carried down the length of the hall without having to walk. A modern miracle, the clockwork age. You'll also notice that several shops and small service bureaus line either side of the ground floor of the promenade, and above them, a walkway extends around the entire perimeter of the building, the upper floor leading to what appear to be small private offices. However, all, your eyes are drawn to the fantastic glass roof, which runs the length of the promenade, beautifully curved to allow you to gaze upon the underbelly of the great airship hovering above. Tonight, the bright scales and tentacles of the chronobel can be seen glittering in spotlight. So, that's your first impression as you walk through the, uh, the, the promenade doors. What are you going to do? I uh, look in every way that I belong in such finery, that I was born to it, and that, God willing, I will die within it. And <laughs> I uh, stride confidently forward toward the, the, uh, the queue, that, that I would I would need to uh, proceed through in, in order to get on to the airship. Outstanding. Uh, and those of you, uh, uh, Spook and Alfred, uh, what are you going to do as you're, you see the vicar sort of step out of the cab, take a deep breath as if this is his daily routine and walk into the promenade? So as for Spook, I want to wait. I, I don't know what time, as far as like what the time frame between now and when the ship will actually leave, but I want to wait a, a period of time, like maybe even an hour if I have that long, and just continue to watch to see if anything stands out, if I see anything, so that there's a pretty big separation between me entering and him. And then I also, are these cabs, these hansoms that are pulling up, do they have a door on both sides, kind of like a taxi cab would, or is it like just the side that you would get out? Um, there are, well, handsome cabs only have one uh, door, but it's in the front. So you step into the cab, and then you sit back, and, the, and then the, the driver drops the, 
the, uh, the glass in front of you to keep you from getting wet. Um, and so that's the uh, that's a handsome cab, but there are also other cabs that are more traditional for larger groups that will uh, have doors on both sides so that you could enter or exit from either side of the, the vehicle. All right, I want to try to time it that one of when one of those vehicles is pulling up that I jump in on the right side just as the last person's getting out on the left so it looks like I'm part of that party coming off. Okay. On onto the uh, ramp and plus that way I get a look uh, a better look at this uh, hot chick that's lit, talking to people. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, so you're going to wait outside pretty much until the very end, right? You're just going to kind of dash in at the uh, at the last second. Yep, unless I see something that concerns me. If I see, like, people that I think are carrying rifles rolled up in carpets that are heading in front of me, I will wait until the very end. Okay, great. So, Alfred, what are you going to do? Um, Alfred would have wait, definitely waited until after the vicar entered. Uh, I'm going to assume a little bit of uh, dynamic... Uh, between our player characters that we have worked together, we know each other's strategies. I I would know that Spook likes to play the long game and be a little bit more observant. Um, I want to get into the promenade and look around, kind of suss out our surroundings. Um, so I think after the vicar goes in, I'll give it about 15-20 uh, minutes uh, give Spook the nod, and I will make my way in from the street and present my uh, invitation. Okay. So, as you walk up, and and certainly uh, there is a vast majority of the, the, the folks arriving by Ansem, um, but certainly no one is, is uh, beyond walking in, in that age, so it's not not necessarily something that would draw suspicion. And you arrive and you're greeted just as the vicar was and welcomed into the promenade. So when you go in and you and the uh, and, and vicar are, are now together, um, you, you look up, you see the tentacles of the chronobell hanging there, you see this beautiful space. Um, you see at the very far end of the room a low set of arches to allow entry into a room marked boarding and platforms Boarding platforms and security. And above the, bo the boarding platforms and against the far end of the building, four glass tubes carry passengers from the promenade up through the roof of the building, the waiting gondolas of the airships above. They're very slow, they're very stately, and each tube seems to be able to hold about a dozen patrons. And as you're watching, the leftmost glass elevator ascends, carrying a number of waving passengers, all smiling, and uh, obviously delighted to be on the uh, on their way. The promenade is only lightly filled, though, uh, with men and women all dressed for an evening on the town, moving about with giddy anticipation. Laughter, general merriment seem to be the sentiment of the evening. Most are perched on the moving walkway, um, and there's several shops that are open uh, and have put things out to a sell. And you see some couples on the upper floor walkways looking down on the promenades, pointing and whispering among themselves. So you see that the, the shops that are, are open are um, a costume shop, a toy shop, a pub, 
and the Icker Exchange where you can buy Icker. And those are sort of uh, along the way, and then you have this walkway that goes, and then at the far end, the boarding platforms. So, Vicar, um, Roby, what would you like to do? Well, I will proceed confidently toward the, uh, the security. I have nothing to hide, nothing between... Uh, no, no, nothing to, to declare. I'm, I'm uh, easily confident. I uh, give off graces of someone who is not to be troubled with mortal affairs, and, and I, I, you know, head down, eyes forward, march right through. How about you, Ruby? Are you guys going together, by the way? Nope. No, I am not going with him. Alfred, uh, Alfred's going to go up to the pub, have a pint. Okay. Although I presume that the pub has some sort of view over the security, so if there's some sort of horrible fight breaking out between me and several <laughs> Icar-influenced demons and clockwork monstrosities that, that someone will at least notice. Oh, no. No. The, in fact, security is through a set of arches. You can't see what's beyond. Um, the pub is along the promenade, has a great view of everything that goes on on the promenade, but doesn't necessarily have any view into what's happening in the security rooms. It's like the gates of heaven and the gates of hell, Padre. You don't know where you're going until you get to the other side. <laughs> Some of us know where we're going. Thank you, sir. So, as, as uh, Vicar, as you're making your way down towards security, you notice the first place that's open for business is called Gilly Flower and May Clothiers. They set up a number of racks outside their shop with this large sign, tastefully done in gold lettering, proclaiming, your alter ego awaits masks for the Tintagel Ball sold here. And the racks are filled with costume masks, mostly half masks that cover your eyes with a little small strap to hold them in place. But they're wonderfully designed, exotic birds and animals, feathers, semi-precious stones, some political literary characters. There's a set of really nice Egyptian pharaoh masks, some long-nosed plague masks that are somewhat creepy, and a few just simple black masks are also bit, uh, available, although color seems to be the order of the evening. And one particular set of masks, you see whirling gears and green glowing eyes set in a case, along with other mechanized masks, mostly made of gold. These cover the entire face and are filled with movable and mechanical parts and blinking lights. So, uh, Vicar, would you like to stop in at the clothier, or are you going to move on down the road? The, uh, the clockwork masks do seem very interesting. My, my first question is... Um, Will I be socially expected to have a mask during the, the ball proceedings on the airship? Well, it is a ball, and yeah, I, there's certainly a at, a... at a mask ball, you'd probably want to have at least a nominal black simple mask to, uh, to hide behind. Um, but no, it, it probably... you wouldn't be kicked out if you didn't have it. You pay 250 pounds for the party, so you're in. Well... Um, I abhor masks of all sort, but it's it's important for modern day clergy, especially for us Anglicans who are fighting against the Catholic cur, to appear genteel and accessible to the layman. So I, I will enter the shop. I will browse for the simplest, stateliest mask I can find, and I will also keep a, a very keen eye on the clockwork eye glowing masks. Those seem really worth investigating but uh, certainly not worth trying on. Okay. So as you're, as you're approaching, a young woman 
who, who tells you her name is Julie May, uh, Julie is her first name, uh, approaches you and says, oh, Vicar, how good to see you, how very good to see you. Going to the, to the Tintagel Ball, how exciting. I wish I could go, it would be a wonderful experience. What can I do for you? Maybe an Egyptian mask of sorts? You look like a man of discriminating tastes. Ah, your eyes do you credit, my daughter. Yes, uh, only the finest of tastes must be represented for God's chosen children. I'm, I'm afraid, however, that uh, Egypt and its pharaohs, they, they are, are quite uh, terrible sinners. They did not worship our God as, as we do. I, I uh, Look, I, I assume she has some sort of token crossed necklace around her neck. Uh, certainly, certainly. Almost everyone did at, at the time. Okay. Well, um, I, I uh, seem I, I, I gush with warmth and and a confident demeanor toward her, and I say, "So, my my darling, could you point me towards something that that would be uh, as as dour and statuesque as as a, a good Christian vicar, a good Anglican vicar would demand?" She looks at you and kind of her eyes twinkling, and she goes, "Well." I understand about the, the Egyptian masks, and maybe we pick something that, that, that doesn't have any overtones other than that of fancy. I think of you as a man of action, someone who is ready to strike, and she pulls out a small mask that is uh, of a leopard skin and has sort of little tufts where uh, the ears would be and straps on, and it looks like it's a, it's a pretty nice mask, and she goes, a little daring, but yet stately. Certainly something that will excite the people that you talk to. Mm. And yet, do we want our audiences to be excited, my dear? You should be excited from within, not excited from without, I say, in a very uh, double standard as I'm decked with glittery gold, large rings, obnoxiously shiny uh, chains with, with an overly large silver cross. My, my, my daughter, please, if we could try one more time to get something a, a little understated, a little subtle, a little... And then out of the corner of my eye, something uh, catches my eye that, that is, is a black-based mask, um, but it's, it's uh, basically been riced out, glitzed up, glamoured up. There are a number of... Uh, sequin-like jewels and gems all uh, fake upon close inspection, but they uh, seem from far away to be uh, genuine and extremely valuable. And I say, ah, this, this this bejeweled wonder, pray tell, was this made by good Christians such as ourselves? Uh, this mask indeed was made by the Little Sisters of Infirmary, and it is bedecked in jewels that set off the color of your eyes, but not in a way that would be uh, alluring, but only in a way that commands respect and the dignity of your office. My chest fills with pride at her statement. I say, my dear, you've done very well today. I will take this. So for a single quid, you also get a, an extra Benny, so go ahead and take a Benny. And you now have a beautiful mask that fits your personality. As you're uh, leaving, go ahead and give me a quick notice roll. All right, that's a total of a six. Total of a six. You notice that the, the masks with the green glowing eyes uh, 
periodically puff out a little bit of smoke. Um, so they're clearly running on ichor, and the uh, ichor, of course, creates uh, steam, and uh, you would expect that those masks would be actual ichor-powered uh, creations, which would be exceedingly expensive and certainly out of control for a pick something up for the, the, the party type of, a, of an event. Um, so, Alfred, what are you going to uh, what are you going to do with the uh, the uh, the vicar? The vicar has gone, and you see him moving moving down towards the, the tinker shop. What are you going to do with the uh, flower and May clothiers, if anything? Or are you staying where you're at? Well, just just to clarify, that is the first shop in there, and I go past it before I get into the promenade where the pub is and stuff. The pub is the so there's two shops and then the pub and then beyond okay. the pub is the security area. No, he's he's gonna go right for the pub. Okay. I'm feeling that uh, that that the thirst for a pint. Outstanding, outstanding. So you go past the uh, the clothier, past the toy shop, and to the Eagle and Child pub. Um, it's actually opened a long outdoor window so you can buy a beer and sort of stand against the bar and watch the festivities on the promenade. Um, most of the tables are empty. There's only a few older patrons relaxing before the flight, and an older barman and his wife are working the small crowd. The large guy, sort of smiling face, very friendly. What can I get for you? Oh, I might just a uh, just a pint to quench my thirst, if you don't mind. Very well, sir. You're going to be on a very special flight tonight. Uh, it'd be wonderful to be able to see the festivities all the way in Cornwall in two hours. Can you believe it? What is this age bringing us to? Quite, uh, quite the modern marvel, I'd agree. You're, uh, you're not going to be aboard with us? Oh, no, no. I'm afraid that uh, likes, the likes of me couldn't afford 250 quid to uh, fly across the, uh, the country for a party at night. No, I'll be, uh, be home and setting up the uh, pub for tomorrow. All right, working man, got to work all the time. I remember those days myself, and I will uh, drink drink the pint and continue to chit chat amiably with him. Okay. So as you you're, you're chit chatting, and as uh, the vicar is coming across uh, or passing the uh, toy shop, you both see uh, there's the Tinker's toys, and it has flying in the air above the table that they've set out outside the shop. To the absolute delight of everyone, is a small-scale model of the Chronobel, hovering, moving slowly up and down the promenade. And there's a young boy. He's deftly working a metal control box with a number of dials and wheels. Moving one of the dials turns the rudder in the ship circles. The toy is about two feet in length and made of cloth over wire. It's elaborately crafted and painted. And uh, he's calling out, "Chronobel models, Chronobel models." Come fly your own airship. Why let them have all the fun? Hmm. Uh, I think Alfred would uh, take a look at it from the bar and continue to talk about it with the bartender. Well, that's uh, quite an interesting toy there, isn't it? It's wonderful. My father, he owns a shop and he makes these. They can go 40 feet from where I am, and they're filled with, with helium and it. They have small Iker powered motors and 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 Arabels. How many do we, we only have two left? And he's speaking to his sister 
They're only 50 quid. Watch this. And he shows you as it kind of does a slow nosedive and then comes back up. It truly is something that's that's very, very fascinating. Hmm. Come on, sir. You would love it. It would be awesome. I, I don't happen to recognize this child, do I? No. Okay. We'll uh, reach down and, and ruffle his, his shaggy hair. Uh, 50 quid's a bit too steep for my pocket there, little one. I'll, uh, maybe next time. But, sir, it's the most wonderful thing you would ever see. Have you ever seen a flying airship? Well, yeah, there's the big one right above us that I'm going on, and I. Yeah, but this one you can fly yourself. You don't have to wait for others. Not quite my taste, lad. Kudos for, uh, cheers on you for being a, a right salesman, and I'll flip him a quid. Excellent. Well, have... Have have a wonderful evening, sir. It's it's been my pleasure to talk to you, and I'm sure the trip will go just wonderfully. So, outside, uh, it, it's getting somewhat late, and the the ship's going to be taking off shortly. Um, you certainly the crowds have thinned almost almost to nothing, and a cab pulls up in front of the uh, aerial dock, and uh, Spook, go ahead and give me a notice roll. Okay. All right, I got an ace, so that's going to be a 15. Wow. So sitting back... I can see the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sitting back in the cab, hidden in the shadows, impossible to see, unless you have the ears or the eyes of an eagle, which you just happen to be at the right angle with the sun coming in at exactly the perfect spot. You see Rufus sitting back in the shadows, talking to another figure, Sort of a large, looks like an Eastern European, uh, man of Eastern European descent. And uh, they're speaking, and the, the, the European gets out, and the cab starts to pull away. And wow. he seems to be all business. He sort of just nods off the, the gushing of the, uh, of the attendants and seems to be making his way as quickly as possible into the building. Okay, well, I will. Uh, I will go ahead and pull the maneuver I mentioned earlier. I'm going to try to arrange it so that I I look like I'm with another group of people as they're exiting, like uh, the last cab that I can do that with, and then I will do my best to try to follow this person without them realizing that I'm doing it. And um, I also, just before that happens, I will notice the fourth member of our party has arrived, James Micah apparently has arrived on scene, getting the message we left for him back at the clubhouse to get his butt over here. Outstanding. Uh, a cab pulls up, a fairly large cab, not a handsome, but a fairly large cab pulls up. You see Micah in the window, and he kind of nods to you, expecting that you would be outside scouting around. And sure enough, just as expected, the party starts to leave. You kind of enter in the far side of the camp, and you get out with Micah on the, the other side. No one seems to be the wiser the cab with Rufus seems to have pulled off. Um, you don't see any signs that uh, it's still in the area. A few minutes have passed, so clearly you, you're, you're undisguised at the time. And a small child, well, eight, eight years old, kind of dashes up to the, the edge and goes, oh, I, I've, got to get, I've got to get a message to someone inside. I don't have a ticket, but I'm not going on the flight, but I'm just going inside. Can I go inside? And the attendants sort of wave the uh, the child through, and he's looking around, kind of looking at each face. So he's clearly trying to identify somebody. Meanwhile, somewhere down the uh, the moving path, the uh, Eastern European is just quickly making his way towards the departures without 
any signs of looking at any of the, uh, the shops along the way. All right. So I will make sure that James uh, knows this. I will whisper into his ear that um, the Padre and uh, Alfred are already inside and that I'll indicate that person is someone that knows Rufus. James would recognize Rufus as the head of the, the haunted hand. The haunted hand, yeah. But I'm going to continue to mosey. That's kind of my thing. I'm a bit more laid back. So I'm still going to peruse the shops and try to get on the ship basically the last possible minute. Okay. So the uh, child runs up to uh, the bar, actually, and to, to Roby, and he, he obviously recognizes you. Um, you've seen him. He's one of your, uh, your street urchins, your irregulars, as you will. He says, it's done, sir. Order the kippered herring. They're in the box with the kippered herring in the kitchen. If you need them, you can get them yourselves, or if you order them, the waiter will bring them to you. All, everything's set for you, sir. So, so thank you, sir. And he kind of stands there for a second, looking at you anxiously. Is uh, is that other kid still selling the, for the toy airship? Oh yeah. The other child's name is Aaron. He's out trying to pedal the last few people rushing by. <clears throat> I'll uh, I probably had a couple pints by now, but uh, I'll, I'll set down the glass, throw some coins on the counter for the barkeep, give him a nod. Oi, Aaron, still selling those flying buggers? Got, got one left, yeah. You want it? Set up my little mate here, and I throw on the coin. Wow. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you, sir. That's, that's the nicest thing anything, anyone's ever done for me. So you're allowing the child to take the airship and leave? The, yes. Okay. Just wanted to make sure. Um, and, I'm, and I just signed his death warrant, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, uh, this is a friendly Everybody Lives campaign. So, rushing in, Micah and Spook. So, yeah, I was going to make my way to the mask um, shop, and uh, I want to time it so that the young lady is right there. So I walk up and I go, nice rack. <laughs> and then when she nice. looks at me, I'll point to the masks and go, nice rack of masks here. Uh, what would you suggest for my features? She blushes and she said, oh, you're a devil, aren't you? And she actually has a mask that she pulls from underneath the ca the counter. It's a white mask with gold horns, gold eyes, and gold teeth. And she says, oh, this is for you. You're a devil. All right. Um, is there any sort of insight that I could roll to see if she's being playful or if there's a bit of an edge to that. Yeah, go ahead and give me a just a uh, regular uh, D6 roll plus your wild dice. I got a five. It's hard to read her. She seems, she blushed when you said nice rack. That certainly seemed to have caught her off guard. But she seems to have recovered pretty quickly. And now you might even notice uh, a tinge of, yeah, I'll get you back. Try this mask. All right, then I will um, I'll say, you know, I'm not a true devil, sweetie. Um, do you got something else maybe a little less jarring? Uh, well, Egyptian masks are always fun. We have a beautiful set of blue and gold Egyptian masks. Only 10 quid. Certainly a man of your stature would want to show off those beautiful blue eyes with an Egyptian mask with blue and gold. You'd look 
They're actually more of a hazel with specks of green, which draws me to these masks over here, the ones that are clockwork with the glowy eyes. That What would one of those run a man? Oh, that's her most expensive mask. You must have fine taste, sir. Now she, you sense that she's a little sarcastic. Forty quid, and it's yours. Stephen Forty. It'll last the entire trip. You won't need to buy another Pearl of Icker until you get back. Forty quid. That's uh, that's no problem whatsoever. I've I've kind of got my hackles up now. She's, I gotta I gotta make it look like I have money. So uh, I will buy one of the cool Steamwork green-eyed ones. Outstanding choice. Outstanding choice. So normally in the application in Morningstar, I would be sending you a picture of what you've just purchased. Uh, along with any notes on what you would find uh, after using it. Are you wearing the mask or are you just carrying the mask? I'll carry it for now. Um, do I know, like, the green eyes, I'm, I'm assuming in-game, does that give you any sort of enhanced vision? Like, do I know what it does or is it just all cosmetic? You don't know what it does until you put it on. You know that green is the color of Icar and the glowing green is typically a sign that something is Icar-powered. Okay. All right, yeah, so I will just carry it uh, for now. I won't put it on until, until later. And then uh, after I've made that purchase, I'll go ahead and board and look for Padre and um, Alfred. I will assume he's at the bar because that's where he's usually at, but I'll go ahead and get on so I don't miss the boat. Okay. So the only question I have now is the vicar who was up in front. You have no reason to suspect that the the Middle Eastern, or I mean the... Um, uh, Eastern European fellow is anything other than just another passenger coming down. Is that correct? That's correct, as far as I know, yes. So he he passes by you. Uh, give me a notice roll. Notice is a skill, uh, and uh, add your wild dice. That's a six, but I may use a Benny and roll that again. Okay. Oh, the second roll's a four. Excellent, excellent. So, a four, huh? You might notice a that his clothes are a little baggy, like they don't really fit all that well. But other than that, you don't notice anything out of the ordinary, and he passes on by you. So as you pass through the, or do, I guess, any, anything else at any of the shops before you sort of go on to the into the security area, we'll assume that uh, Micah has picked up a just a plain black mask for, uh, for the time being. So the four of you are now entering into the security area. At the entrance to the boarding platform, several young women in short-skirted uniforms, each with the East India Company logo on their blazer and a clipboard in their hands, wait by the archway, broad smiles on their face. One of the young women steps forward and uh, ushers you into the boarding platform. Happy Walpurgis Night. I'm Zoe. Welcome to the Cronobel Excursion to Tintagel Castle. We hope you enjoy the spectacular ride and party. And at this point, she's asking each of you for your name and to get a look at your ticket. Gladly okay. offer her my name and present her with my ticket and uh, talk to her about the immense pleasure that I'm sure to get from this uh, ride through the sky. It is unforgettable, let me tell you. I've been lucky enough to go on just one when they were training the staff, and it's an experience that I'll never forget. So is anyone leaving... Refusing to give a name or leaving a false name? No. J uh, James will give his uh, his correct name as well as and his ticket without any issues. Yeah, so will Alfred. Okay. 
our membership within our organization is within the the King of Clubs is just as secret as the organization itself. Which is to say that all of the enemies that we know by name and know their organization, they know us by name and know our organization too, right? It's sort of like a James Bond esque deal where we show up and we know who they are and they know who we are, but we go on pretending that Universal Exports is a company. Uh, yeah, that's a very good a very good uh, surmise. Obviously. Um, as new people enter in, you have to learn who they are. But um, the main players you've met many uh, or encountered on, on many occasions, so it is well known that uh, you work against each other. Good. Well, then I'll just Doctor Nope my way right through this name question. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. So uh, I, I realize it's that you're 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 almost the last on board, but we have two spots left for tours. Um, of the airship, would you would you like to go on a tour? We have one at the very beginning of the flight, although you're going to miss the wonderful views of London, and we have another just before landing, although you'll miss the views of Tintagel and the surrounding com countryside. It is a fantastic tour. You get to go up into the airship and see all the inner workings and the mechanical bits, and it's it's a wonderful, it's fascinating. Um, would you guys like to go on that? It, it's it's really part of the tour. Like, is this for all of us as a group, or are you still talking to... No, you're, um, all, you're all together now. Um, okay. They take, they take people in groups into the uh, through the security. So you're now, uh, as a group, uh, together, just the four of you. Um, and there's a few more groups, you know, behind you, if you will, but pretty much everybody else is on the airship at this point. Okay. Um, my vote would be we do it last because we don't want the bad guys to have a chance to put their nefarious plot into place while we're busy doing that. And plus, I want to make sure you guys all know about this uh, dude that I saw coming in, the uh, Middle Eastern man, and we want to try to track him down early. Those are my thoughts. It was my impression that the spots on the tour were for individual people, because as, as far as she knows, we are not a cohesive group. We are a bunch of individuals, right? Well, I, I have four spots uh, on the tour at the beginning of the flight, and, and we, we have a... We have four spots just before landing, um, so you could all go together if you'd like, or you can go separately. She doesn't seem to think that it's, uh, I mean, people have been arriving in non-related groups all night, so it's not unusual for uh, people not to know each other in the groups. I will coolly regard the clearly beneath me people, companions who have shown up in, in the, the glass tube, if I'm not mistaken, or, or in the security area with me. Uh, with 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 a slight look of not disgust but disappointment, and I'll I'll turn to regard this this young lady and I'll say, um, well I for one, uh, well okay, metagaming at the ex extreme risk of splitting the party, I think having at least one person scout the airship early would be really advantageous. Yeah, yeah, I can see Matthew shaking his head now. So so I will say, oh my my, my darling, I would I've seen London. But I have never seen the inside of an airship this magnificent. I would love the opportunity to to tour it at the earliest convenience. Outstanding! You'll be in the very first group. It's a wonderful tour. You'll you'll really enjoy it. And count count me in for that too, love. I want to see what this bird has got in the wings, so to speak. Excellent. So we have two for the early, one for the late, and. You don't I'll want also uh, pop in for the late. Two for the early and two for the late. Outstanding. It will be something you'll never forget, I promise you. 
And she leaned, she said, oh, we, we need to go. It's, it's getting time. And you know, she's taking notes on her little notepad, and she moves down this oak-paneled hallway lined with doors, and she stops at door number seven. She opens it, and inside there's a nicely furnished room, several small antique tables, there's gas lamps, paintings of dramatic seascapes and sailing ships, Persian carpet of abstract design on the floor, and at the far end of the room you see a mechanical clockwork bulldog is moving about. Its gear is clicking, and you see two what are clearly guards, a tall young man with a blinding white smile and a short woman with dark features standing on either side of the door. Um, and Zoe says, this security, so go ahead and go on in. Enjoy your flight. You're going to love the, uh, the trip. It's going to be wonderful. And she sort of turns to go back down the hallway to grab the very last group coming into the, uh, to the security area. So you guys go into the room. Yes. Yep. Luckily, my character has suffers from overconfidence. He's positive he will walk through this unscathed. However, the player is pretty sure that that dog's going to put its nose right to my uh, nethers, take a big sniff, and the jig will be up. My crotch rockets will be exposed for all to see. So you walk in, and William, who with his blinding white smile, looks at you and smiles. There's never been an accident on the East Indian airship. Thanks to a few safety precautions. Remember, smoking is permitted, but only in the gondola, in the lounge. On, on, when you're on your tour, remember you're surrounded by explosive gas. No smoking, no flames of any type. It's for your safety as well. And also, no whip, weapons are permitted on board. If you're carrying a weapon, one of our stewards will be happy to check it until you return to London. Now, we are completely full tonight, 192 passengers, and we can't accommodate any luggage, but it doesn't look like you've brought anything. So there, he's sort of standing, smiling, watching you. Um, go ahead and give me notice rolls. Is this a, a visual knowledge or a, or a visual notice or a, uh, or a sound notice? Because I have a negative to sound noticing. Um, these are visual. Visual, gotcha. So, uh, one quick question, Chris. Um, is Do we think the bulldog is what's going to detect any contraband, or are there people that are, like, also going to be doing that? Well, the two guards are wearing these sort of uh, eyeglasses that are got a slight green glow to the lenses, and the bulldog is sniffing. Okay, because I want to try to distract the two guards um, as the Padres going through. And basically I want to show them my mask and be like, Hey, I just bought this in the Concord. It's just like yours. And uh, just sort of try to get their attention. So it's not fully on um, him. Uh, and as for my role, I actually, I aced again. So I got um, I'm 11 on my notice. Okay. Well, you notice that the guards are actually scanning you. They're kind of just going floor to ceiling up and down and, you see that the glasses set a glow um, as they're looking at you, and the bulldog sniffing. So now you're going to try this distraction, yep, of, of showing the mask off. So, uh, what are the rest of you doing while this is going on, especially the vicar? I, I am being very thankful that the Anglican tradition for years has been to wear thick lead underpants. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad. I've never understood that as a priest before now, but right at this moment, I'm thanking my lucky stars. Yeah, lead underwear. Yeah. 
Bring me my red shirt. Outstanding. The guards are. Go ahead and give me your uh, your uh, persuasion roll. And this is a, uh, a an opposed roll, so I'm rolling as well. I do not have persuasion, so that is basically D4, right? And my uh, wild die. Go ahead and give me a bonus. Uh, do a uh, a roll on your gambling, but go ahead and give me a gambling roll at minus four. Okay. Six, ten, uh, six. So you seem to have distracted the guards. Um, they're kind of looking at the masks. You can tell that they're used to people being very excited about process, and they're very they're very cordial. They're not you know suspicious in a sort of uh, extraordinary sort of way. But the bulldog is definitely moving towards the vicar. <laughs> now, those are the only guns you have, right? There's no no one else armed with anything that has. Gunpowder. Correct. I have a pistol. Uh, that's Micah? Yes. You, you might have missed that part at the beginning. We're not allowed to have weapons, so we gave them all to the Padre, and he's sneaking them on. Then so... that's where my pistol is. Okay. <laughs> we have a pistol, but it's up the Padre's skirt right now. Okay. Um, Fantastic. Luckily for me, that underneath the lid of the underpants, we've wrapped all the guns in thick plastic, and then I took a full shower to wash all gunpowder off of my person before we put the guns in there, right? We'll see. Thanks for attending the RPG Academy and listening to our podcast. We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. This podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash the RPG Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We will use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out numerous ways. One, you can subscribe to our show on iTunes or you can leave us a five-star review on iTunes or on Stitcher Radio. Also, if you clear your cookies and then visit Amazon or drive through RPG through our portal, we get a kickback from your orders and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like an RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at vrpgacademy.com, or you can reach us on social media such as Facebook and Google+. We are there under the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, Caleb G, at the Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at the RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. <laughs>